Welcome to another episode of Hone In. I'm your host, Saad Alam, and today's conversation is a deep dive in how to increase your creativity, your success, and your mental resilience. Our guest is Polina Pompliano. She is a multifaceted entrepreneur and author. She founded The Profile. It is a media organization that delves into the long-form profiles of trailblazing personalities and businesses. Inspired by her work there, she authored Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. Polina shares profound insights from some of the world's most influential minds, including MMA heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou, Kobe Bryant, David Goggins, and Martha Stewart. Polina encourages us to adopt an ethic of constant improvement. As she points out, the person you are today does not have to be the person that you are tomorrow. Throughout the conversation, Polina drops gem after gem, including how to keep promises to yourself, the art of rule breaking, the magic that unfolds just when you are about to give up, why consistency is the bedrock of trust, and how to define success on your own terms. And in full disclosure, Polina and her husband are investors in Hone. Without further ado, let's hone in. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. So first thing is first. Tell us about Hidden Genius, and more importantly, what inspired you to write this book? Yes. Um, I wish that I had like this amazing story of I've always knew I would write a book and et cetera, et cetera, but I didn't. I never, as a, as a journalist, I was used to writing short form at most a thousand words, let alone like I never thought that I would write a book that was 40,000 words, which is insane. Um, but in the beginning of 2022, I had a newborn baby and someone who was an editor at a publishing house in London messaged me on Twitter and said, hey, I really like your newsletter, The Profile. Um, if your thoughts ever turn to writing a book, because he's British and they talk like that, <laughs> if your thoughts ever turn to writing a book, we would love to talk with you. And I was like, my thoughts would literally never turn to writing a book, but I am curious about the publishing process in case in the future I ever think to do that. So I got on a call with him just to ask him questions out of curiosity. And he's very good in that he could sense that there was a little bit of curiosity there, but he knew that right now I was in like the depths of darkness uh, with a baby. So he said, why don't you just send us a one paragraph summary of the book, what it would be about, maybe your learnings from the profile, uh, and then we'll go from there. And then that little short paragraph turned into a table, a sample table of contents, which turned into a sample chapter, which is the length of a, an article that I could write quickly. And it, it, I wrote it piece by piece, but I'm very excited about it. It's just that it, it's basically the culmination of all the work that I've put in to my newsletter, the profile where I studied the world's most interesting and successful people. And I took those learnings and made them practical and put them into a book. So, I mean, even two things. One, congratulations that you did that <laughs> while you were raising a young child. That sounds like such a huge lift. <laughs> Thank you. I guess the no, other thing great. is, why do you, why did you want to dedicate your life to finding out what made people successful? It's interesting. I've always, I really, really like humans. I think it's that there's so many human stories everywhere. And throughout my life, I've, I've just always really enjoyed um, talking to people and finding what makes them interesting and what makes them unique. And Hidden Genius is a nod to that X factor or that, um, that little thing that makes us us, that makes us exceptional. And I really truly believe everybody has a Hidden Genius. It's just that they haven't discovered it yet. And so... It just, it honestly, it comes innately. Like I, I find humans fascinating and I love having conversations with interesting people. So it was a natural extension of what I already enjoy doing and how I learned. I learned from people's stories because 
I'm an empathetic person. And when I hear a story, it triggers emotion and emotion triggers your memory. So that's how I learn. And and that's what I would be doing. Even if I never wrote a newsletter or a book, I would still be learning through what I like to call people-focused learning. I love that. And it just sounds like you are inherently an intellectually curious individual, and it's just been a large part of what's driven you your entire life. Very curious. And so you've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of people, and really tried to dig in and listen incredibly purposefully to figure out what is the thing that makes them exceptional and successful in their life. And, you know, hopefully someone reads your entire book, but if you had mm-hmm. to take one piece of information and that's it, one, and you're passing this on to your kids and you're going to say, this is the one thing that makes someone truly exceptional. What is that one thing? The thing that is a common thread among all of these people is longevity. And when I say longevity, I mean consistency. And mm. in the book, I talk about the compound interest of trust and how there's this one formula that can build trust in your professional life, in your personal life, if you have a business, in any negotiation. It's that consistency plus time equals trust. So if you keep your promises on over a long period of time, people will inherently start to trust you. Because trust is earned and not just given, I was hyper aware of that when I started the profile, my newsletter, in that I knew I couldn't miss a week. I still haven't missed a single Sunday of sending it since February of 2017 because I know, of course, life is going to get in the way. Of course, there's going to be weddings, funerals. You're going to have to fly across the world at a moment's notice. But if you can somehow bake systems into place where you know that you're going to be consistent and those people who sign up, whether you signed up on a Monday or a Friday, you're going to get that newsletter in your email on Sunday morning. They are that much more willing to a continue to be subscribed to you, but also maybe back you with their dollars. So in a personal uh, relationship, it would be if you are with someone, you don't know, can I trust them? Can I not? But if they make promises to you and they consistently keep their word to you over a long period of time, you know, you can trust them. I think I've seen that trait in almost every single person who's done something remarkable. It's so interesting. And I love it too, because I also think about consistency as keeping promises to yourself. I want to do this. I want to show up. And what people don't realize is what makes people successful is not an overnight success, although that happens from time to time. It really is doing the same thing, boring routine, day in and day out, watching your skills compound and being there at the right time, which is kind of the way we kind of, I would argue, describe luck is when hard work meets opportunity and that's the moment it all works out. Yeah. My favorite is when somebody comes to me and they say, I want to do this creative project, whether it's a newsletter or a podcast or something like that. And they tell me the cadence and the cadence is I'm going to do it every single day, Monday to Friday. And I'm like, please don't, because (laughs) if you're not willing to be consistent, which, you know, if you're everybody's always really excited and passionate in the beginning. But like you said, when that slog comes and when you get bored and when you get, you know, things kind of get muddy, that's when most people drop off. So if you're starting something Maybe start with a slower cadence because you can always speed up, but don't start and over promise and under deliver where you're like, I'm going to do this every day. Oh, sorry. Like Thursday, I can't Monday. I can't. And then it just falls off the tracks. But I agree with you. I think actually the most disciplined and successful people keep promises to themselves first and foremost, and then everybody else. That's great. And, you know, one of the other things that really stood out to me is something that you wrote, and it was a chapter about creativity being a skill and not a talent. Mm. And God, I love that so much because I tell people that I become creative by falling over myself and failing more times than anyone else and just being enthusiastic every time I get up. And you know, tell me about how you came up with that because I wish it's the skill that more people could take on. Yeah, I. It, it's so funny. Pretty much every chapter where it's something mushy like creativity or relationships or um, uh, leadership or something like that, I, I really tried to explain that 
those things are skills. Even something as mushy as love is still a skill. Um, it's not just something that you're born with or that falls from the sky or creativity uh, for a long period of time. Everyone used to attribute it to God. It's something you are born with, painters, you know, that that was a God-given uh, trait or the muses. The muses gave you the gift of whatever. But I'm sure you know a lot of people like this. I know a lot of creative people who say, oh, I can't create right now because I'm waiting for inspiration. <laughs> and I don't know, for me, it's never been like that, probably because for journalism, it's a somewhat creative. You're writing uh, and you're putting things together, but you have a deadline. I can't tell my editor, like I had to wait to be inspired. <laughs> so I've always had a hard deadline, so I know Yes, I can be creative in this kind of environment. Um, and I think it was Aaron Sorkin who said, you know, you need structure in order to be creative. Otherwise, if it's completely unstructured freedom, it's the same as finger painting. The other is art. One is finger painting, one is art. Um, so I used to always say, like, only break the rules if you know the rules. And a really good example in the creativity chapter is Grant Ackett, who is this really innovative, cutting-edge chef uh, who created the top restaurant in the world at one point named Alinea in Chicago. And he was a super creative chef, like very cutting-edge, very innovative. And then he got stage four tongue cancer. Mm. It's like, what are the odds of like the best chef in the world getting tongue cancer? And then everybody was like, oh my goodness, well suddenly you're not going to be creative like because as a chef the taste your tongue that's where taste comes from and he developed all these systems that were creative acts but they were rooted in logic and it weirdly made him even more creative um and i think like you said uh, you said like the failure aspect of it every six months he does this ed catmull from pixar does this Every six months, Grant will force his team to blow up the entire menu, no matter how successful and how amazing and popular it was, because he didn't want to breed complacency. He was like, I want you to start over. Even if we create something that's crap, it forces, our, it forces us to start over every six months and experiment and try and innovate instead of just doing the same repetitive thing that's worked for the past X amount of years. How do you think someone that's not creative can become creative? Because I, I also think there's a story that a lot of people tell themselves that if I'm not creative, I will never be able to get there. I'm a logic person. I'm a math person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> so. The biggest misconception is probably the story we tell ourselves. Um, for a long period of time, I told myself that I'm a writer, not an entrepreneur. Therefore, I can only write, not start a business, until Substack came along, which is the platform that I publish my newsletter on, and it allows writers to make money. <laughs> so suddenly, you have to kind of think like an entrepreneur, even though that wasn't a skill you thought you could ever need or use. Um, so, I, you know, to me, it's like, okay, let's say you're a really logical person. You're like, I'm not creative enough. Create time in your schedule to be creative and do the thing that you genuinely enjoy. The top grossing, the, the newsletter that makes the most money on Substack is a newsletter about salads. So it's like there's any, any activity or any hobby that you have could potentially be a business. It doesn't have to be, but... I always say that you should do something that you only do for yourself because that is a creative act in and of itself, whether it's running or writing or doing a podcast. Um, it, you never have to, you don't have to figure out how it should make money. Just do the thing that you enjoy. And, and I do believe that like a lot of us are more than just our job titles. I'm sorry, if you're an investment banker, you weren't born destined to be an investment banker. There's You have other passions and like interests. So it's exploring those. And I think the creativity will naturally come. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I have come to the conclusion 
that I'm the most happy when I'm actually being creative. And mm. it's so hard running a company, have a million things coming at you, also trying to be a family man to find time to be creative. And so what I started doing is I started thinking about what are the different activities I do in order to be creative or when do I have my most creative moments? And mine became yes. a ritual of sorts. So it is, I write down the problem I'm trying to solve. Mm -hmm. I actually do a little light brainstorming beforehand. I put my world on do not disturb. I throw a pair of headphones on, pre-curate a playlist, and this sounds silly, but it is violin dubstep music. And then <laughs> I caffeinate really hard, and this has to start at three o'clock in the afternoon. And then I have a whiteboard either in my place, which was the first thing I put up, or in a WeWork. And for yeah. six hours, once I get lost, I get lost. And a lot of stuff doesn't make sense, whatever comes on the whiteboards, a lot of pictures I take, but it is arguably the time I have to basically create like a safe space. And I do it twice a week. And if I don't do it, the quality of the ideas is just so much worse. Yes. And and there's there's I mean, there's a ton of research to back this, but in the book I actually talk about uh two things that are exactly um related to what you just said. So a lot of CEOs, they started off as founders of these small businesses where you had to be really creative to start this business in the first place. So they would start the business, then the business would be successful, it would grow in size, and then they found themselves being more of a CEO manager and mm -hmm. their calendar would be filled with meetings and calls and all this stuff. And then suddenly they realize, oh, wait a second, I'm not doing the thing that made the, the business successful in the first place, which is that brainstorming and creative, um, creative brainstorming type thing. So a lot of them will, once they realize that, put chunks on their calendar for this exact thing where whether it's like four hours at a time or something where you're not constantly interrupted. Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of Spanx, she buckets her time in days because she doesn't like the constant um, context switching. So she doesn't like like having a marketing call at 10 a.m. and then at 11 product and then whatever. So she'll be like, Tuesdays are just for product. Wednesdays are just for marketing. Thursdays maybe are my day for um, brainstorming and things like that. The other thing that you mentioned is like a mental ritual. Um, it's really interesting. I do this too, and I didn't realize I did it until I read what Shonda Rhimes does. Um, she's a she, she's a writer. Uh, she writes like these most very very addicting uh, yep. television shows, like Grey's Anatomy. And she, they're like, okay, how do you get in the mood to be creative and to write? And she says that every single night she goes into her little office, she lights a candle and she makes green tea. And even the movements are similar because that tells your brain, okay, now it's time. And there's something about that mental switch, like now it's time to brainstorm or have ideas that puts you in the right mindset or what they would consider the muses or the inspiration and then you're uh, able to create because you're not like tight and, and busy. I do the same thing. I, I write at night. And I think to me, it's like I always um, uh, like I would have this is really random, like a tiny those baby size like Cokes, like Coca-Cola. Not great for your health, but great for writing. And it would be right there. I would open it. I would be like, OK, now it's time to write. And, and then I would just go. Um, so, yeah, I think like creating some sort of little it could be as simple as you have tea at night, simple ritual to tell your brain it's time to be creative. The, one of the conclusions we've come to is that if people don't find their zone of genius, which very often is like their zone of creativity, mm -hmm. it isn't a good fit for our particular culture at our company. And so one of the things we quite literally, I would argue, maybe the number one or number two uh, trait that we hire for is when people come to us and they, you know, you're, we're a little bit bigger now. And so you've got to find people that are more managers, but we always yeah. tell them that as co-founders of the business, we all love playing in the dirt. And they were like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, look, we are so deeply operational and we love being creative. And it's the early stage stuff that is so ambiguous, yeah. that gives us so much joy that you have to rip it out of our hands. And if you're not that kind of person, it's not going to be a good fit because we like working with people that are inherently willing to solve problems through creativity. And right. that's how you maintain that kind of like small feeling, 
even as you scale the business. Exactly. That's a really that's a really good point. Playing in the dirt. Playing in the dirt. And we say it all the time. And people always give you that, <laughs> what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> now, one of the other things you wrote is that mental toughness seems to be one of the most important components of the people that you interviewed for the book. And there's there's this one common trait, which is really their ability to endure. And right, the first person mm -hmm. that comes to mind is David Goggins. And when he starts his rant about going into hell and loving it. And can you kind of talk about this whole concept of people manufacturing hardships? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so the biggest lesson I learned here is that a lot of people um, personify pain and the people who can endure a lot of pain. And what I mean by that is David Goggins is one example. He, uh, he, he talks about going into this like dark room where he faces himself and he tells himself the truth. Like you're fat, you're lazy, you lie all the time. What are you going to do about it? And then that's, that's the pain. Like he, he sees pain as this dark room where you face yourself, the true, your true self. And then you come out the other side and you've transformed into a different person. Um, Courtney Dawnwalter, who's a long distance runner. She's ran through like head injuries and broken feet and everything she talks about the pain cave again personifying pain as a place she's like i know i'm, I'm going towards it i'm ac actively running to it i know i'm gonna encounter it inside it's gonna be horrible i'm gonna hallucinate there'll be all these things but then i'm gonna come out the other side and the reason that's um valuable and important is because it helps her think that she's in control of going into the pain cave and equally is in control of when she leaps. And then you're like, okay, but what about the people who are like shoved in there against their will, like the involuntary pain that life brings. And I, I read the memoir of, it's so good. It's called The Sun Does Shine of Anthony Ray Hinton. He was on death row for 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. And he was in there and he was often in a small cell and he would say, like, you know, I, I would mentally travel to different places. I had tea with the queen. I won Wimbledon. I married Halle Berry. He would, like, travel <laughs> and use his mind to visualize a different reality. So the whole point of, like, seeing pain as a place and thinking of it that way is that, like David Goggins says, you know, um, you go in as one type of person and you come out the other side as a different type of person. And if you don't break, you'll transform. So it's almost seeing it as like a trans transitional thing that you have to go through. Um, and uh, like, I think it's physical. A lot of times, a lot of athletes do it. But in life, if you can personify it that way and you think about it that way and create almost voluntary hardship, bake it into your days, you're better prepared mentally for when life hits you in the face with something you did not expect, but you have all that um, practice overcoming small hardships that you're not going to completely lose it over this one. When you say manufacture hardships, like if I'm going starting my day, yeah. What should I tell myself or what should I do to basically know that I'm going into my pain cave? I, I would literally have a plan. I wouldn't just wing it. So, for example, if you it doesn't just have to be physical challenges either. Yes, of course, like if you want to train for a marathon, you get stronger, run when you don't want to run. If it's raining outside, go run anyway. That, again, builds little moments of trust with yourself. If you've promised yourself, I'm going to run every single day this week, and then you deliver on those promises, you learn to trust yourself more. But um, I'm talking about, for example, let's say you really hate negotiating. Put yourself in a position throughout the day where you have to negotiate over something. Put something on Facebook Marketplace and sell it from your house and try to negotiate with the buyer. Little things like that, that would prepare you for when you have to negotiate a raise with your boss or, or negotiate a really big deal for your business. It's like, if you've never faced that uncomfortable hardship before, you're not going to be ready in the big moments. So bake it into your day. There are two stories that come up for me. Um, one of the guys that works with us and is one of our co-founders, Seth, when he moved to New York, he was having trouble meeting women. 
And so mm -hmm. he had told himself that he's going to just randomly walk up to women. And he is so the sweetest guy in the world and just yeah. randomly start having conversation and complimenting people. And I was like, you're not going to do it. And that was <laughs> the thing that taught him how to be comfortable talking to women. And it was amazing to watch him kind of go through the process. For me, it's yeah. interesting because the conclusion I've come to is if I push myself right to the point where I'm gonna fall apart, like let's say, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. you work 10 days straight, you work 14 hours every day, and on the eighth day, you're not thinking right, your body feels kind of weird. If you push yourself one more hour, it's that point when you break yourself that you actually become stronger. And it means the next yeah. time you're doing it, because you've pushed your boundary a little bit more every single time, it actually increases your overall capacity. Uh, and uh -huh. this sounds so silly, uh, but I'm a huge Kobe Bryant fan, huge. Yep. And he would always talk about, you can go to the dark side, but you can't let it consume you. And I was like, what, That's, what does that mean? It sounds so stupid. Mm -hmm. And I kind of understood about if you, in order to really feel the pain and be immersed by it and learning and learn how to own it and not let it control you, you have to completely envelop yourself in it. But it's easy yeah. to get lost in it. Did you come across any research about people talking about how to really use that dark side? Yes. Um, that's called the, well, it based on, so Kobe is on the cover of the book and he's in the mental toughness chapter. But I talk about him in the context of, um, it's um, the alter ego. So a lot of research uh, supports having an alter ego can help you overcome a lot of hardship, um, especially in the really, really dark times. So Kobe, um, when he was in his lowest in his career and he was literally getting booed off the court, um, people were saying, Kobe sucks, like the chance, everything. He was there, obviously, he heard it all, but he realized he was like, okay, Kobe right now, like I need distance from him because I don't, I, I am in the darkness, but I don't, I need to perform. So in the moments where you need to perform and it's really, really hard, a lot of people, including David Goggins, who identifies as Goggins because he thinks David Goggins is a weak person. He's like, I was built, not born. That's what he means. He built this alter ego of Goggins, who's strong, who keeps his promises to himself, all this stuff. Then there's Kobe, who was the Black Mamba. He would go out on court, no longer Kobe. I'm now the Black Mamba. You can boo me all you want, but like I have distance between myself and my aspirational self. And then there's Beyonce, who is super introverted and shy. But when she goes up on that stage, she's like this powerhouse that you would never recognize if you knew her personally. Um, because she has to, she has to perform. There's no way you can perform at a stadium with hundreds of thousands of people if you are a shy, introverted person. So again, like going back to creating voluntary hardship and baking it into your day, I was very similar in that I hate public speaking. I think I'm a better writer than I am speaker. And I had all these things in my head and then an opportunity came where I had to give a keynote speech. And I was like, oh, come on. I did everything to try to not do it. And then I said to myself, okay, well, this is a perfect opportunity to practice what I preach. And like, let's like, let's try it and let's do it. And I would bake small moments into my life to try to do it on a smaller scale where I would perform for my parents or my husband. They were much more brutal than an audience of 500 people. But it like forced you to say, okay, I'm this kind of person here. When I go on that stage, I become something else. Um, and I and I think like uh, one time, this is so random, but I took a yoga class and I it was really hard. And I still remember the yoga teacher said, right at that moment where you think you're about to give up is when miracles happen. And I think it's what you just said about like, right when you're about to break, something happens uh, that either surprises you about your own abilities or uh, makes you realize like, oh, I do have that skill. And so David Goggins, it's a Navy SEAL thing, but he uh, talks about how a lot of people, when they're about to quit, your mind just gives you an option to exit. That's when you actually, you're only 40% done. You have more to go. 
Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I, it's funny that you said 40% because that's the number I hear in my head. And I feel like it was another, maybe it was Goggins, or I feel like it was another Navy SEAL that says, you have so much more in the tank. And I mm -hmm. tell myself that all the time. I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to do them. Like, stop it. Stop it. You got so yeah. much more. You haven't even really pushed yourself right here. In, in, uh, in what situations does that happen for you? Is it more of like a physical thing when you're running a marathon or something, or is it like in your daily life? All the time. <laughs> and what I, <laughs> you know, a great way to think about it is right. Sometimes we put ourselves through schedules that are three weeks straight, back to 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 back. No, no stopping. Always something that comes up when you think you have some space, you actually don't have space because something else pops into it. And it is, I can literally think about getting off an airplane going, I don't know how the hell I'm going to put, get myself through this. And I went, wait, wait, Saad, you, first of mm -hmm. all, you get to do this. You chose this life. You should feel grateful. This is a gift that you're chasing your dream. And then on top of it too, there are people that would die to be in your place. And you know what? You've been training for this for 20 years. Like this is your yeah. moment. Make sure that you take advantage of it. And the second that happens and you start doing that thing, you're like, oh, you're right. It was completely mental. It was something I was telling this, myself in my head. Yeah, and this is exactly, uh, I, I talk about the difference in the book about listening to yourself and talking to yourself. And that was the perfect example. It's like your first instinct when something goes wrong or something is painful is to listen to yourself. Like, oh my God, I can't do this. What the hell did I sign up for? Why am I doing this? And my foot hurts. But then talking to yourself is like when you actively take control of the inner narrator and you start saying like, I, I was watching this um, a video of a football player recently. I can't tell you who, because I don't know football, but it was really good. He was miked and right before the game, he was talking to himself and he heard everything. And he was like, all right, like, this is the moment. This is what you've been training for. This is what you're made to do. And like, he was telling himself the things that a coach would normally tell you, but he took control of that voice and hyped himself up for that moment. So it's like, I think a lot of us just run on autopilot, unfortunately, and we just listen to whatever our negative inter internal uh, narrator says. And a lot of times you'll realize that voice isn't actually you. It's a lot of times the trolls on the internet and what they've said, or like an abusive parent at some point, like it's often not your voice, that super, super critical negative voice. So it's like taking control of that and making it useful. Your self-talk is so damn important. My, I wish I had this video to show right now because it is really funny. My fiance will record what I say to myself when I go into my creative sessions. Oh my God, this is and amazing. And you, you hear, <laughs> I look in the mirror because I'm just so caffeinated. I'm, I'm listening to music that I love and I'm saying stuff like, oh, you got this side. Oh yeah, you're genius. Oh yeah, good for you. Oh my God, no one's going <laughs> to no guess this. And I'll come out and she'll be just smiling, beaming from ear to ear and she'll play it for me. And I was like... Oh yeah, I don't realize that. I tell myself that all the time because it's so easy to get down on yourself when things aren't yeah. going right. And you just have to constantly remind yourself. And who would have known that you talking to yourself and telling yourself about why you're so great is gonna be the thing that helps out. But it seems like mm -hmm. the best of the best, they really have so much self-belief and it is them telling themselves, or I mean, also my mother, God, she is like the yeah. most amazing person in the world with how supportive she's been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, this is really interesting. So it's a slight nuance. Um, it's called iliism. Have you heard of this? No, no, no. Okay. So um, iliism is really interesting. Um, it's not often well received when people do it, but it's actually used in therapy a lot. Um, when, when somebody has like suffered some sort of trauma or PTSD, um, they'll encourage them to look at the situation more objectively. And to do that, they'll have to say, they have to talk in the third person. So I'll be like, Paulina went to the store today and there this happened to her. And if you notice, LeBron James does this a lot. David Goggins does this a lot. They talk about themselves in the third person. It looks very narcissistic on the outside, but it's actually like, it's 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 a thing where um, you put a little distance between you and that alter ego. Um, so, so, or between you and your real self and you're more of like that aspirational alter ego self. Um, so, you know, when David Goggins says Goggins is a, is an animal, he's a savage, like he's talking about himself, 
but it, it sounds narcissistic on the outside, but it's actually very helpful to add some distance so you don't see yourself so um, emotionally and non-objectively. I mean, it's really what you're talk talking about also is a way to compartmentalize your style, yes. your two different personalities. Did you come across that more often as you talk to these people? Oh, for sure. And um, it's it's almost like uh, there's a, so the chapter on relationships is really interesting because I found it interesting in writing it um, because a lot of people uh, have stories about their lives, but then when they sit down and they write the same story from a um a different actor and there are a different character in their life they'll see it a little bit more objectively because they'll be able to empathize with their feelings and like how did that affect them instead of just me 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 um so yes i i think that people who have gone through some sort of really difficult experience like david goggins in his childhood if you don't put distance between yourself today and that self, it's really hard to progress and grow. Think like, ask yourself the question, like, who is the real me? Is it me five years ago? Is it me today? Or is it me in 10 years? Like, who do you think is the true you? Because you've changed and evolved all those times. So I think like a little bit of compartmentalization is probably necessary. And did you find anything about, because I struggled with this a lot too, Am I talking to myself right now or am I talking to myself five or 10 years from now? How do you make that distinction? And did you hear any great anecdotal information or is there research around it? Um, well, the biggest mistake that human beings make is thinking that they are uh, they are not works in progress that are evolving. They think they are finished. So the person I am today, I think is a constant that I will always be this person. And the entire book, plays I, I tried at least i try to play with the idea that perspective is slippery and so is identity so the person you are today does not have to be the person you are tomorrow um and the perspective that you have on the world today does not mean that this is the only reality and the only truth so it's like those things are so slippery if you can play with them you can really really create the person that you want to be and i think like most people, take Martha Stewart, for example, the most successful people know that they can reinvent themselves no matter what happens to them. Martha Stewart has been relevant to my grandmother's generation, my mother's generation, and my generation through constant self-reinvention, even though most people forget she went to prison for insider trading. She was able to take that. Her mugshot was on the cover of Time magazine, and people were like, it's over. Self-made billionaire, over overnight. And in while in prison, I heard her on a podcast talking about this, like she was already plotting, like, how do I make that return? And I'm going to reinvent myself in this way. I'm going to partner with this person. I'm, so it's it's intentional, but it's also like knowing that what brings you to your knees, like you don't have to stay there. Like you can always reinvent in some way. You know, the, the place this comes up all the time is for whatever reason, parents always send their children to talk to me whenever they're trying to think about what do they want to do with their life. And it's it happens to be Pakistani parents that want their kids to choose uh, a major. And it usually has to do with medicine, even though I dropped out of med school. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's almost like these kids, and I was one of them. Our parents said, this is who you're going to be. This is where you have to go and you need to run after it. And there's so much pressure on you to think th your identity is this point that you've chosen. And what I tell people mm -hmm. is, no, what you do is you choose a point and that point is also defined by time. And if you care about that point, you race to it as hard as you can, you put your all in it. Mm -hmm. And once you get there, you're gonna have accomplished something and you're gonna be standing on some yeah. kind of mountaintop and you get to stand there with a new perspective and a bunch of new skills you've learned that help you just learn. Those are learning skills. And then yeah. you get to say, you know what? I either like this or it sucks. And if it sucks, the best thing is because you have new perspective. You can go, you know what? That other thing over there is so much more interesting. Let me race towards it. And I love the word that you use is that, identity and perspective are slippery um mm -hmm. and it's but it's slippery in the best way yeah. they they aren't slippery where you don't can't stand on it they're slippery because you know what you can move to the next thing as fast as you want yeah. to yeah yeah and and i think like 
That's really interesting. I think it's also a very immigrant thing because my parents and I came from Bulgaria when I was eight and they were both chemical engineers and I liked writing. Um, but but I was in like school for chemistry. Um, I was in like this high school that had a magnet program for uh, science. So I was taking like biochemistry in ninth grade. And then I was like, okay, well, I don't like this, but I like different ingredients or aspects of it. And I think that sometimes you can take those different things. So for example, I liked the research part of science, which helped me with the research part of journalism. Um, and I liked writing the lab reports, which then helped me develop my writing based on the research. So it's like, if you know what the ingredients are that you like, you can then flip it into whatever, like you said, you dropped out of medicine, but kind of what you're doing now also has, it's kind of related. So it's like, it, it's, it's really hard. You just have to, the, the, um, in the, in the final chapter of the book, I talk about how to know who you are. First, you have to know who you do not want to be. And I think as fast as you can figure out who you do not want to be is gets you closer to who you do want to be. Absolutely. And, and what you said about, you finding parts of chemical engineering that actually really are made you who you are today is so mm -hmm. important for, I think, young people to understand. Because as you're taking those steps out to that first mountaintop, whatever you learn will become part of your story all the way around. And I always tell people this, they say, why do you enjoy what you do so much? And I said, well, look, one of the biggest impacts, one of the biggest pillars of my life is impacting people and making sure I can mm -hmm. have a positive impact. And that's something my parents gave to me. And then to your point, I took it and now I'm, we're running right the largest hormone clinic in the country. And then on top of it too, I am a diehard consumer. I'm a marketer's dream. Right. If you find me on Instagram, I'm <laughs> buying it. I've got more shoes than I should have. I've got more shirts. I've got a bunch <laughs> of stuff I don't need, but we've taken all those things that I love and we've created this really progressive brand. We publish this content that helps millions of people. And so what yeah. you figure out is all these things kind of come together and help you create your perfect life. And it, do you think that it's a fair statement to say that a lot of the people you interviewed, they engineered what success looks like for them? Yes, definitely. Like, the, the thing that I address in the introduction and then again in the conclusion is that success doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm. So there's no one perfectly successful person. There's not one person who's got their professional life figured out, their personal life figured out, everything about them is successful. Um, so like, like we're talking about the slippery nature of identity, success isn't a rigid thing. If you only define success as how many yachts and, and cars you have, like that's not my idea of success at all. Um, different people define success in different ways. That's why when I do interviews, the last question I always ask people is, what does the word success mean to you? Because it tells me so much about what they value. To me, success is a life well lived or just like a meaningful, meaningful life where you did something with this life that you're proud of or that you feel you have accomplished. But also I'm drawn to the stories of people who have set out to do something. They've they've achieved something they've always wanted to achieve. Then they failed miserably. Then they learn from that experience. And then they use that experience to go on to achieve something else. And then they shared the lessons with the people who are ahead of them or, or coming after them. So it's like, Success isn't, um, it's, 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 not a, it's not a definable thing, in my opinion. I heard this wonderful quote the other day. The meaning of life, the purpose of life is finding what your special gift is. And the meaning of life is making sure you give it away to the world. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's so good. And I was thinking it perfectly fits what you're talking, and it couldn't be more true, right? Like you get so yeah. much self-satisfaction from being able to do the thing you do so well and give it to the world, which arguably someone that we're talking to did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like special gift, if you replace that with hidden genius, that's exactly mm. what I'm trying to like explain. It's like everybody has this thing. Maybe you haven't discovered it yet, but when you do, it's almost a responsibility to share it with everybody else. But one of the things you talked about, and we talked about it before, and you make it a big part of your book, is that concept of trust, right? And it mm -hmm. is, 
everything kind of starts with this concept of trust. You, we all know that you can spend a lifetime creating trust and you can pull it all down in minutes. Talk to me more about how important trust is in relationships overall. Oh my God. I mean, it's foundational. It's foundational for any relationship. And, um, you know, Naval says at first, uh, maybe you don't trust somebody, but over a long period of time, of time, like the compound interest of trust is that the more time and effort you put into it, the more compound interest or the more trust interest you get. And then eventually, instead of a big fat contract with multiple legal documents and whatever you have to sign your life away to, it's actually you can do a deal with a handshake with somebody you have a really high degree of trust with. Toby Lutka, I'm trying to say his name right, um, from uh, uh, Shopify, he talks about the idea that um, trust, he kind of sees it as a trust battery. So like every person you meet, whether it's a personal or professional setting, everyone has a trust battery at 50%. That's where it's charged. And every single action that you do either charges a, a little bit or discharges it. So he's like, aim to be a person who stays charged at over 80%. Um, and yeah, I, I, I am constantly thinking about trust because without trust, like I wouldn't have a business. People wouldn't buy the book that there wouldn't be, um, you, you can't build anything meaningful with, by being inconsistent. Could not be said better. And you know what? I also <laughs> think that as you get older over time, you begin understanding that trust comes in different forms. And what I mean by mm -hmm. that, or, or even maybe a perfect example is when we started building this company, there were a bunch of different personalities that came together to co-found the company. And what felt untrustworthy from another individual actually was just completely non-discreet. They had no harm, no intention. And it just happened to be, I wasn't used to their style. And as I work with people, I realized the things that would have theoretically offended me before now actually have no bearing at all. And I also have to make sure I look for the good in people to keep that battery. And I love that concept, like the battery number higher at all points in time. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think building a company is so hard because you have to have trust, of course, with other employees, but also your customers. Mm. And especially in something as sensitive as like health, it's so hard to build. But once you build it, it's almost like a lifelong loyalty because it, it's it, it's the tiny, tiny actions and results that people get that they will then become, you know, very active in talking about the brand in terms of like, I trust them with my health. And when you, when you kind of think about people and trust, are there things mm -hmm. that you, and I don't mean to be personal, are there things that you and your husband have done to actually increase trust in your relationship? Um, so I talk about John Gottman, who's uh, this like psychotherapist in the book, and he can, with, I think, something like 97% accuracy tell whether a couple will make it in the long term or break up. Um, and the way he has done it is through observing couples. And there's a few things that he's noticed And one of them. This is, it's a trust thing, but it's also kind of a respect thing that I think we're very mindful of. It's like, um, everyone's like, oh, Valentine's day, let's do big flowers, your birthday, let's do a big celebration. Those are big moments. And of course you kind of expect your significant other to like do something nice and special those days, but it's actually not about that. That doesn't tell you about the longevity of a relationship. What does is actually built trust in the small moments. So the small moments being like, um, if I say, Hey, Look at that cool bird over there. If the other person literally as simple as like turns their head to look or um, puts their phone down to look at you and engage in conversation, those are the small moments that actually build trust over a long period of time. Um, in, in the, uh, I think John Gottman says it's not infidelity. It's not all this stuff that like chips away at the foundation of a relationship. It's actually those tiny, tiny um, moments throughout the day. He calls them bids for attention. So when one person makes a bid for attention, does the other person respond? And that's how he can tell whether the 
what separates the masters from the disasters in a relationship. I feel like you just gave me so much to think about in my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> so happy. <laughs> I'll call your fiance later. <laughs> yeah, she's going to say, I know that half the time he's not listening to me and it's not intentional. <laughs> and my mind is just somewhere no, else. No. But if no, you're exactly, telling me just the awareness and being intentional about it, because we're like that too. I used to get annoyed at Anthony all the time for being on his phone when I'm talking to him. But once I told him the bid for attention thing, he'll like actually put his phone down and talk to me. I'm like, see. Well, listen, you just made it a game. I mean, 94% accuracy if I just pay attention. Yeah. God, if that's the exactly. thing that's going to do it, sign me up. There you go. You talked about Goggins being able to be empathetic because of the life he led growing up. And for the people, actually, could you quickly tell the people what got, happened to Goggins as a child that made him who he is? Yeah, David Goggins was uh, incessantly bullied. There was racism. There's all sorts of things he faced as a child. He had uh, a stutter. He um, couldn't read well, all this stuff. His father was very abusive. And then um, it put him on this path where, you know, in his 20s, he was spraying for cockroaches, making like $1,000 a month or something insane. Um, and he sat down in front of the TV with a large shake from Sneak and Shake. And he happened to come across a program on the Discovery Channel about Navy SEAL Hell Week. Uh, and in that program, he was like at 250 something pounds, whatever he was at the time, he was like, I'm going to become a Navy SEAL. And he changed his life. That is super, super hard to do. It's, you know, very few people can do that and have the discipline to actually follow through. But I think empathy comes from being there or hearing people's stories that trigger something in you and then and then using it to either make yourself better or make the world better in some way. And how do you think that being empathetic fits into the grander scheme of things? How does that make you better or enable you with the tools to be exceptional? Mm. So it's such an interesting question. When we moved here, um, I was in fourth grade and I didn't speak any English and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And it was just like, it was all the things, <laughs> it was all the things you can imagine and more. But like the thing I really loved doing was reading and suddenly I couldn't read. I couldn't talk. I couldn't make friends because I didn't know the language. So the lack of communication forced me to really observe people. And I was like, huh, I wonder why they do things that way or like really pay attention to body language or why does that person always sit in the cafeteria in that exact spot with those people? Um, it made me more curious about people, but then also it made me more like empathetic around okay, that's the new kid in school. They're sitting by themselves right now. Like, I know what that feels like. I'm going to go over and talk to them. Like, I think it's really, truly those tiny moments that change the world. I think it was um, uh, uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, he once said that, um, you know, the most impactful things in human history are probably not like, a peace deal or a war ending or something, it's actually probably somebody forgiving a deep hurt from somebody else that changed the course of history that we'll never know about. But it's something like small and interpersonal and empathetic um, that happened that maybe ended a war. It wasn't some two politicians talking. So it's like these interpersonal relationship things that we go through on a daily basis. If we can learn to see the perspective of somebody else and to kind of imagine what would happen if you saw your life from a different character in it, it would make you, it would make you see reality more objectively. And it would also make you more empathetic because, because you're seeing reality more objectively. I could not agree more. I feel like when I don't have the rest of the story, my mind yeah. naturally creates what it believes is the rest of the story. And I always think I'm smart, and so I know what the rest of the story is. And yeah. nine times out of 10, when I hear what the other side is, it makes me go, huh, you yeah. completely misread that situation. And really, the truth makes you feel so dramatically different. And all that anger or all that 
what you thought was intelligence and a direction to go was actually completely false. Yeah, and, and sorry, to answer your last question, like why is it so important? Why is empathy so important? Is because I think we're seeing what happens when there is no empathy or very mm. little empathy. It's a divisive world where it's Republicans on this side, Democrats on this side, and like whatever. And it's it's very rigid. And the reason that I have never fallen into any sort of political category, people can't really put me in a box, is because I'm an immigrant from Bulgaria who grew up in the South, who moved to New York as an adult, try to figure out what I believe. Like, it's very, very, it's very hard because I can see the perspective of different people and I can see why they have been led to believe what they believe. So I'm not mad at them. I'm more like empathetic with them. And I think like we've become so divisive because we have tribes with people who believe the same things we believe. And it's really hard to break out of that. Like James Clear says, um, you know, it's not hard for people to change their beliefs, but you're not asking them to change their beliefs. What you're asking them to do is actually to change their tribe. And that's much harder to do. So if I think empathy comes from surrounding yourself with totally different people, but also being emotionally intelligent enough to not get sucked into the belief, but be able to have a conversation with anybody. I love the way that you said that. And you're completely <laughs> right. It's we get so pulled into what we think our tribe's view may be. We forget to bring our head up and go, let me question myself logically to think about what I actually believe in. And I think mm -hmm. the way you described your multiple perspectives, I was literally tracing it <laughs> going, you're right. Like you have seen so much out there and it's probably so incredibly interesting. I'm going to ask you one last closing question. Yes. I would say of all the people that you have interviewed or learned about, I'm not going to say who's your most favorite because that wouldn't be fair. I would say whose views and what were they specifically that fundamentally had the largest impact on your life personally with the understanding that everyone has a different perspective and it would impact them differently. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> I used to be a person who would take everything very personally, and that was really bad um, in like personal relationships because I would always assign malice where it was there was no malice. Um, but like you said, like you fill in the story, the unknown in the story with something horrifying instead of something positive. So I... Uh, interviewed Robert Hogue, which most people may have never heard of. Um, he, he he did a TED talk and he wrote a memoir called Ugly. And the reason it's called Ugly is because he was born as a child with um, a massive tumor in the like in the front of his face. On the um, it, it took up, it moved his eyes, it rearranged his nose. It was awful. So they had to do multiple surgeries on him as a newborn baby to try to like kind of uh, bring his eyes closer because uh, they were on the sides of his head to the point where his mom in the interview, Robert was like, can I read you a journal entry from my mom's diary from when I was born? And I was like, oh my God, sure. And his mom literally wrote, this baby is so ugly. I do not want to take him home. You know, how could God do this to me? All this stuff where your own mom doesn't want to take you home because you're too ugly. She left him at the hospital. They went home and then the family actually took a vote with all his siblings of should we bring the baby home? And his siblings said yes. So that's why they brought him home. Um, she basically he, he understands it now. He has completely no ill will towards his mom but he was like you know imagine as a parent seeing that and being like how hard is that going to make life for this child for all his siblings etc um so he grew up like being severely bullied all this stuff and he still finds so much beauty in life and he's like i've led a beautiful life but the thing that he told me that goes back to what i said about taking things personally and completely reshaped how I see that is he's like, you know, actually when people don't ask me about the way that I look and the bumps and the scars and the whatever, that's actually a little more disappointing because there's this like wall between me and the person I'm talking to. He's like, of course, ju there's judgment, you know, like some people will judge you based on whatever, 
But he's like, sometimes people ask questions because it's just curiosity. And he's like, sometimes curiosity is just curiosity. So when somebody asks you like, hey, what happened there? It's not that they're judging you. It's that they're genuinely curious. And he's like, I always take the opportunity when somebody makes a remark or asks a question to open the door and tell them more and share something about my life. So I, I since I talked to him, I've always thought about like, hmm, maybe sometimes people aren't asking questions out of like, ooh, what are they trying to get at or whatever. Maybe it's genuine curiosity. Kids do this a lot. They'll ask somebody like, hey, why does your face look like that? They don't mean it as like judgingly. <laughs> they mean it genuinely because they're curious. So I think like um, from him, I learned looking at the world through a curiosity filter because any lens that you attach the way you see the world, that's how you're going to see the world. When I was watching a lot of reality TV shows, I saw the world through like bachelor style, like, ooh, you know, is he doing this behind my back? Or why didn't she text me back? Is she mad at me? Like all this stuff. So the way that you see the world will affect what story you tell yourself. So if you look at it through a curiosity filter, I think you allow yourself to be more empathetic and also to be less divided in a world of divisiveness. I feel like you also just validated my entire ch child and adulthood as well, too. I <laughs> ask questions because I'm just so goddamn curious, right? I would imagine that every time someone asks him about what happened to his face and he gets to tell the story, yes. you are actually making the world a more beautiful place and you are enriching someone's life and impacting them in a way that they probably have never been before. And that then allows that person to go tell another person about it. And the yes. story lives on. And it's, it's. I actually think that's, that's beautiful. All right, so that's one. Mm -hmm. I want one yeah. more. Okay. Ooh. Uh, oh, okay. The other ones are also like, I just, I really like stories like this just because it's like, it makes you realize what, um, what people have been through and to get to where they are today, um, is Francis Ngannou, who's, uh, the MMA heavyweight champion of the world, or he was, um, he basically made it from Cameroon to Niger, from Niger to Nigeria, from Nigeria to Algeria, from Algeria to Morocco, and then from Morocco to Spain in hopes of becoming um, like a boxer, a professional boxer. Uh, even though, you know, he didn't have any connections, he didn't, he really, really took a really hard path to get there. Um, and while crossing, as he was trying to cross as a refugee between um, Morocco and Spain, he was 16 times authorities caught him in the water and and put him back um either they brutal they either put him in a moroccan prison for a whatever period of time or dropped him in the middle of the sahara desert and we're like good luck um he made the journey every single time kept coming back kept iterating um and then he uh got asylum in uh spain and then he was homeless in paris living in a parking garage and he started trading at a boxing gym. He was like, all I need is a boxing gym. Um, and then when people asked him, like, what was it like to be homeless in Paris? And he was like, honestly, if you saw where I came from and what I'd been through, that was like a four-star, five-star hotel. <laughs> um, so anyway, so he ultimately made it to the U.S. as an MMA fighter, not a boxer. Um, but he says that... Um, he says that... Uh, when I, when I asked him, like, is that title, like, what defines you? Like, you made it. He was like, no, because there have been a number of people before me who have had that champion title, and there will be a number after me. I'm not the only one. And um, he was talking about, like, what his next act would be. And he said, you know how sometimes you need to step back to jump farther? And he was like, I've been doing that my whole life. Basically, I'm not scared to bet on myself. He's like, I see so many talented people who are scared to bet on themselves and they're scared to lose everything and start over. He's like, I don't have that. I can start over and over and over and over because I know I have the skills that nobody can take away from me. Nobody can take away the resilience and, and that grit to make it. 
Um, and then the other interesting thing that I learned from him was by accident. I told him that my family came to the U.S. because we won a green card in the green card lottery. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, I used to play that in Cameroon all the time. And I was like, oh, and I was like, oh, look, like, you know, uh, you could have come to the U.S. that way. And he was like, but I don't believe in luck in that way, because let's say I did win and people would be like, oh, my God, you're so lucky you won the green card lottery. And I would come to the U.S., not in the same way that I did, but I would still come to the U.S., but maybe I would work as like a security guard or something, right, as an immigrant from Cameroon. But because of the path he took, he was able to come to the U.S. as MMA heavyweight champion. So it's just like it to one lucky event, but it could totally alter the way that your future looks. So, you know, to some that may have been lucky, but actually it could have been unlucky for him in the long term in the really ridiculously hard path he took actually proved to be the lucky thing. It's, it, you know, to bring it back full circle, it's kind of like the conversation we were having about high school kids just choosing a dot, sprinting to mm -hmm. it with all of their life and their belief and their soul. And then when you kind of get there, it doesn't have to be the thing. It's the skills you acquired. And it's the same thing that he's saying, right? right. It's kind of like you yep. can constantly redefine yourself as going back to the comment you made. Identity is slippery and we are the sum of all of our stories. But more importantly, and this is something that you said before too, our story is never done. Like you can redefine right. it over and over again. And it really is all the skills that it took you to get to where you are that define you more than anything. Um, well, listen, this has been an yeah, unbelievable awesome. conversation. <laughs> I could pick your mind for hours because I didn't re you actually gave me a gift today, which is I know I love hearing stories about people that have overcome adversity and done great things, but I didn't realize how much I love hearing them until I heard you start talking about them. Thank you so much. We are absolutely grateful that you came and it was wonderful talking to you. And I can't wait to see you in Pomp in New York. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe. And hey, if you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not, intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.